I do doubts arise in your hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveled, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. Have a seat and reflect on God's word. Most of you are probably familiar with the story or the account of the space mission, Apollo 13. If you, if you don't remember it, and I won't ask you to raise your hands from actually watching the space mission, uh, you might remember it from the sort of the famous movie, Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks. It's about a mission that was a mission to the moon. It was the third launch that was going to be the mission, another, a third landing on the mission to the moon. But if you remember the story, uh, once they got into outer space, they uh, had significant mechanical problems. And what became a, a mission to the moon actually became just a mission to Earth. They were trying to get the three astronauts to get back safely to the Earth. And as you read through the history or you watch the movie, uh, there, there are all kinds of great moments and all kinds of disturbing and terrifying moments throughout the, the course of the story. But there's one single best part of the story. And that's the story when they, they, they re-enter through the atmosphere. You know, they, they, they're trying to, the, the engineers are trying to figure out, you know, did the uh, capsule called the Odyssey, did it have the right trajectory? Could it make it through the atmosphere? And there's this three minutes of blackout that you can't have any communication back to mission control, back to Houston. And, and would they have made it, or would the heat shields withstand the heat because they had taken some damage? And so what was going to happen, and, and you can imagine that three minutes, the intensity of waiting to see if the Apollo 13 uh, mission that was meant for the moon was actually going to successfully deliver three men back through the blackness of the blackout and into back into the Earth's atmosphere. And I can sort of describe it to you, but the movie does it so well, just sit back and just watch this three-minute clip at the very end of this movie, the end of the mission. One minute and 30 seconds to end of blackout. 
reentering ship has ever taken longer than three minutes to emerge from blackout. This is the critical moment for the heat shield hold. For the command module, survive the intense heat of reentry. If it doesn't, there will only be silence. Mommy, you're squishing me. I'm sorry. That's three minutes. We are standing by for acquisition. Odyssey, Houston, do you read me? Odyssey, this is Houston. Do you read? Expected time of reacquisition, the time when the astronauts were expected to come out of blackout, has come and gone. But all any of us can do now is just listen and hope. We're about to learn whether or not that heat shield, which was damaged, as you remember, by the explosion three days ago, has withstood the inferno of reentry. Ozzy, this is Houston. Do you read me? Ozzy, Houston, do you read Three minutes, thirty seconds, stand by. Ozzy, Houston, do you read This is Houston. Do you read me? That's four minutes. Standing by. Houston, do you read? Hello, Houston. This is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. I've seen that a hundred times, and I want to have the same, you know, experience every time. Like, yes, they made it. I know they made it. <laughs> but he, I mean, I just saw it about an hour ago, and I was like, yeah, they made it back. <laughs> Imagine that three minutes that, that went to four minutes to four and a half minutes, and you're 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 part of the family. You're part of this mission team. You're you're trying to get the person back, and and it's it's a three minute blackout. And finally, they. They bust through, and the, my, my favorite part about that, well, the way they do it in the movie, is you see, you know, they see the capsule and the parachutes, and nobody says anything. It, it's what, it, what the text says, disbelieving joy. You see it, but you just can't believe it. It's so incredible. It's so what you wouldn't have expected, but you get what you, you had longed hope for. And then when, when the, this, the, the, the pilot comes on and says, you know, Houston, it's good to see you. You know, and everybody erupts. It's exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 24. It's, it's not a three-minute blackout period. It's a three-day blackout period. 
Peter, in one of his first sermons after the resurrection, looks at the people who had put Jesus to death and said, you have killed the author of life. And so in those three days, it was like it was a blackout period. It was like the world had lost communication with God Almighty. And, and people were wondering, well, is this it? We had kind of hoped he was going to be the one. Maybe, maybe, no, maybe nothing's going to happen. And then suddenly Jesus comes out of the tomb and he comes into this room and it's like he says, disciples, it's Jesus. It's good to see you again. And, and they just stand there frozen for a minute. Like I cannot believe what I'm seeing. They're in this disbelieving joy. And it's such a great moment. And so when we, we think about this, uh, this moment in history, the resurrection, if it's true, it changes everything. If it really happened, as the Scripture said has happened, then it changes the whole landscape of our world. It changes the whole landscape of how you live your life. Listen to how Leslie Newbegin, a missionary, describes it. The simple truth is that the resurrection cannot be accommodated... It can't be thought of in any way of understanding the world except it's a new starting point. See, when, when you think about the resurrection, if it's true, there's no way to think about it except that it's a new starting point. Some things happen, but they don't require us to undertake any radical revision of our ideas. But the resurrection, it's not that kind of thing. If it's true, it has to be a starting point of a whole new way of understanding the world and a whole new way of understanding your status in it. See, New Begin is saying what the apostles are saying, the writers of the New Testament are saying, if it's true that Jesus really came back from the grave, then, then it's changed everything. The greatest and best part of the story of the Apollo 13 mission as terrifying as and interesting as all the parts of the story behind, the greatest part of the story is when they break through the clouds. In Christianity, a book, uh, the Bible, that's also about a mission, has a lot of great and terrifying stories in it. But the greatest part of the story was when Jesus breaks through the tomb. And that just reorients the whole story and also reorients our entire landscape of how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world. So when, when Jesus comes into the, this uh, room, we know it's locked because in John 20 it tells us that. He comes into this room, and, and I want to just describe a few highlights here too. The proof of his physical resurrection and the practical implications of his resurrection. So he comes into this upper room, it's locked, and he's going to give proof, and then there's some practical implications. Let's look at that. First of all, there's proof. Jesus himself provides two pieces of proof that the resurrection is real. The first piece, notice in verse 44, when he said to them, when Jesus says to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, I was teaching you everything written about me. And notice what he was, the way he describes it, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is a way of saying the Old Testament. When you see in the New Testament, it says the law or, and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's code for the Old Testament. I've been teaching you everything in the Old Testament, and I want you to know that everything in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, 
All of them have been talking about me. Verse 45. Then he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he says, see the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. It's written about the Christ who should suffer and on the third day rise again and that there should be repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a conversation you would have loved to have been in in the New Testament. Because here, uh, uh, the, the top top theological professor walks into the room and says, now let's understand the Old Testament, and he's not going to get it wrong. And what he does is he goes back and says, hey, everything's been pointing back to me. And we don't know what Jesus said in terms of uh, which scriptures he went back to, but my guess is he had to go back to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is what biblical scholars call the first gospel. This is the first place where the gospel is pronounced. And so in Genesis 3.15, perhaps Christ went back to that and said, you know about the seed of the woman. You know about this woman who's going to give birth to somebody, the seed of the woman. And what is that person going to do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And in crushing the head of the serpent, the one who's injected poison into this world, he himself is going to receive a fatal wound. Well, who's he talking about? Imagine if your family went on a camp trip, camp out, and you're sort of around the campfire and you notice a, a poisonous snake slithers into the, to your family. Now, now what you would hope is that the, the dad would get up and he'd take, try to take care of that snake. He'd stomp on it. He'd find a rock. He'd do whatever he could to, to crush the snake. And imagine that he does crush the snake, but while he's crushing the snake, the snake bites him on the heel. And he injects all of his poison into the dad. The dad gets all the poison and he dies, but the family lives. That's exactly what Adam was supposed to do in Genesis chapter 3. He was supposed to be the Adam that stood up and he stood between evil and his family, and if it took him getting all the poison so his family could live, that's what he was supposed to do. But the first Adam failed, but the second Adam's not going to fail. He's going to stand up, and he's going to stand in between his family and evil, and he's going to get all the poison so his family is safe. See, when Jesus goes back to the Old Testament, it's very easy to say, See guys, it's all been talked about all the way along. It's been about me from the very beginning. If he goes back to Genesis chapter 50 and he tells the story about Joseph who has the coat of many colors. And remember, his older brothers tried to kill Joseph, the younger brother, who, who had some uh, exceptions that they just really didn't like. And so they put him to death and what they found out many years later was that Joseph was really alive. And Joseph, the fact that he was really alive, he actually saved the rotten family that tried to put him to death. And then he looks at that family and says, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, where do you see that in the New Testament? But Christ. Every story pointing back to Him. You can go to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses. Well, who is this prophet like Moses who's going to come in and rescue his people from certain slavery? Unending slavery. Going to bring them through the Red Sea like a baptism. 
going to provide miraculously for them on their journey all the way to the promised land and will get them into the promised land. Who is that Moses? It's Jesus. And you can imagine the disciples sitting around this table or wherever they were in this room just nodding like, yes, we've been reading this for our whole lives. Jesus, it's like the whole Bible has been about you the whole time. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, it is all about me. All of creation is about me. Everything points to me. Why, do you, why would everyone like that the space capsule made it through? Why does everyone just inherently want to stand up and say, yes, because that story is embedded from divinity into our culture. That's why you like it. You're wired for that to be true. And when you see it, you go, yes, that's it. And when you see Jesus and you see the Scriptures, you say, they've all been pointing to Him the whole time. And so Jesus is trying to come in and make sure that the disciples know it's absolutely certain that Jesus has risen from the dead. And one way He wants to give proof is to go back and look at the the Old Testament Scriptures. The second way he wants to do it, you see it in verse 36 through 42. It's a very interesting uh, interchange here. The disciples are in the upper room, and like I said, they're startled probably because Jesus somehow just appeared in the room, whether he passed through the wall or whatever happened. He just appears. He doesn't, he's got a, a body like ours, but yet it's different enough that he doesn't have to worry about the same space-time constraints. So he just appears, and they go, All right, we didn't hear a knock on the door, and here this person is, and they're startled. You, you do realize on Easter morning, the tomb got rolled back not to get Jesus out of the tomb. You do realize that. It's to get you into the tomb. Jesus didn't need to get the stone out of the way. He wasn't Lazarus who said, hey, we need to get the stone out of the way. Jesus just came out and he probably said, angels, let's get that stone out of the way and I'm going to go on. It was to get you to in to see that he physically actually came out of the grave. And so Jesus is coming back and saying, I want to make sure that you don't, you don't think this, as notice it says, they thought they saw a spirit. They, Jesus wants to make sure that they don't think they're just having a spiritual experience. That it's not a, a concrete experience. See, because a lot of people, even people in churches today, this morning, would say, this is a great story. I mean, it, it didn't happen really concrete like this. It's, it's like a story. It's a metaphor. And so it's a metaphor for, you know, after darkness, there's light. After death, there's a new beginning. Uh, after, uh, you know, hopelessness, the hope breaks on the horizon. And so you watch the sun come up over the sea and you say, see, there's hope. And, of course, there is hope. But there's hope in something concrete. Not just in a spiritual experience. And so Jesus is trying to really close the door on anybody coming to the conclusion that what was written in the Bible was something just a spiritual experience. It was really a concrete experience. And he does that, notice, two ways. First, see and touch. I mean, guys, come on, come, come close. Put your hands on me. I mean, notice I'm flesh and blood. I, you're not, your hand's not going to go through me. I, you can hold on to me. I can hold on to you. A spirit isn't that way. And then secondly, very interesting to me, they're in this state, I love, this, love the phrase, disbelieving joy. They're touching him going, 
wow, I can't believe it, but they, yet they can't believe it. And he says, okay, I need one more sort of physical proof. What is it? And he's, hmm, I smell some fish. Hey, guys, how about a fish sandwich? And they're like, what? See, spirits don't eat food. They don't need food. They don't eat food. So Jesus said, hey, how about a fish sandwich? Yeah, well, you got your hands on me. Now we're going to eat a sandwich together. Now, here's a good place to say amen. Because we know now we're not going to be vegans in heaven. Amen? I mean, that is a, that is a place to stand up and shout. Sorry, vegans. I mean, you can be a vegan. That's okay. Because I won't be a sinner. I won't judge you in any way at that point. But you, you see what's happening He's, Jesus is trying to lock down both from a scriptural way and a physical way that this wasn't just a spiritual experience. It was a real, it was a, it was a concrete experience. And, and, and the touching of his body and the fish sandwich sort of forever eliminate the thinking that the resurrection is just a spiritual experience. You can think it's true, and, or you could think it's a fable and a fairy tale. You can't think it's just a spiritual thing. That's the one option that the Bible doesn't leave open to you. So Jesus comes back, he breaks through, and he wants to make sure that these people are sure it's a physical experience, that he really did raise from the dead. And now that they believe it, they're sitting down having a meal with them, what's the very first thing we're going to do when we're face-to-face with Jesus? We're going to have a meal together. It's going to be a wedding banquet. And we're going to really eat fish. Second thing he wants to do is to help us see practical implications. If we believe it's true, It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just a metaphor. It's really true that Jesus' body came back. Then two things. Practical implications. First, if you're here and you're searching, or maybe you're skeptical, or maybe you just don't believe. If you hear the message and you believe the message, the first thing you have to do, verse 47, is to repent. If Jesus bodily rose from the grave, then the search is over. If he really defeated death itself, then we don't need to search for a way or a truth or a life. We don't need to search for any other God. He's the one. He's the one God. He's done something nobody else has done, and he's promised to bring you through himself. And the guarantee of that is he went through it himself. And so if it's true, the search is over. There's a very interesting story in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the the missions that happen after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is one of the main missionaries. And he goes to the the intellectual uh, capital of the world. He goes to Athens. So whatever you might think, you know, Duke or Carolina, I would think Furman University. You know, wherever the, the most highly intellectual people are there. And they're, they're the top-notch intellectual, uh, philosophical leaders of the day. And Paul comes into town, and he's talking sort of on the street, and a couple of professors overhear what he's saying and say, Hey, can you give like a guest lecture to the faculty? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, we meet up on this hill. Can you come up there in a couple of days? You give the lecture, guest lecture. We'll get all the faculty together from the university. Great. And so Paul gets up there, and this faculty who loves to search, they love to try to figure out what the truth is. They love to hear different philosophies, different religions, try to weigh which parts we like, which parts don't fit. And Paul comes up there, and he begins to tell them about the God that he believes in. He says, first, I believe that there is one God. I believe that this one God controls everything in life. I believe that this God is not made of gold or silver or stone, because there are lots of gods around in Athens that were made of gold and silver and stone. And they're listening intently. You don't know if they're agreeing or disagreeing, but they're just, you know, they're quietly just listening to what Paul has to say, this guest lecturer. But then, then Paul takes a sharp turn. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. He looks at these professors. I love this phrase. He looks at them and says, In the past, God has overlooked your ignorance. Oh. Okay, so Paul's calling us ignorant right now. Uh, yeah. The top level scholars in the whole world. Hey guys, it's not your fault. You were ignorant. But I'm here now. And I'm going to tell you what the truth is. And you, they just begin to start, start to stir. And then he says, now this God commands that you repent. You, you, you were thinking this way. You were believing this about life or truth. And now you need to turn around and come in the direction that I'm going. And one day God's going to judge the world through one man. And we know he's going to do that because he's given proof this man has raised from the dead. And when Paul said that... The place exploded. <laughs> we cannot have that. Lecture shut down. Everybody go home. Why? It's okay to search. It's not good to find. It's okay if I say, well, you know, there's some good things about this religion. There's some good things about this philosophy. That's all fine. But once you come in and say, hey, I'm not talking about the way to life. I'm talking about the person who says, I am life. I'm not talking about the way to truth. I'm talking about a person who says, I am the truth. And if there is a person who is the life and is the truth and is the way, then you listen to him and you turn away from all of your old ways and you follow after him. And many people just can't give up the search. There can't be one true way. But if Christ has really defeated death, then the search is over. And if you believe that, then it begins to reshape the way you see the world and the way you interface with the world. So maybe you came with a family member, maybe you came with a friend, maybe you come twice a year to church. Has, has God opened your heart? Yes. You, you, inside, you're nodding Yes. Not, not that Pastor Paul's making sense, but the Lord is speaking. And it's time for me to reshape my life around Him. If that's you, we would, we would love to talk to you after the service. So there's a practical implication of repentance. There's a second one of risk. This is more for the person who is a follower after Christ. Think about the implications 
of the resurrection, on your willingness to take risk in this life. If the resurrection means that we have a physical future, just like Jesus has a physical future, He's going to come back in body and flesh, we're going to come back in body and flesh. He's going to eat, we're going to eat. It's, we're not going to have some spiritual out-of-body experience by going to heaven. We're not going to, you know, I don't know where this idea came from that you sort of, you join with the light and you float around on a cloud and you play a harp. You got might get some wings. I mean, when you hear that, you think, does that sound fun? I mean, that doesn't sound like much fun. You sing a lot. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't sound like a good time. Because that's not true. That's not what it's going to be like. You're going to hug and you're going to dance and you're going to love and you're going to travel and you're going to see beauty and you're going to have experiences. All of the ones that you're having here on earth are a tiny echo. All of the joy that you experience right now, whatever you think, is it, this is the best. It's a faint little echo of reality. For eternity. If you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the edge, you go, wow, this is incredible. In heaven, the Grand Canyon looks like a crack in the concrete. You wouldn't even notice it. Because the beauty is so much more in eternity. It can't even be compared to the things that we experience now. And so if it's true that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that He has come back in the flesh, then the risks that we are willing to take are enormous. It changes everything. And the reason I'm trying to emphasize this point because so many people in Wilmington, probably people in this room, they live with this huge burden of regret or they, they live with this huge frantic sort of emotional mentality saying, I'm going to miss out. If I don't have this experience in this life, I'm going to miss out. Because they have this mentality that says, I only live once, and so I have to, I have to grab for all the experiences I can in this life because when this life, life's over, guess what? It's over. And that's not true. But, but we live with this bucket list mentality saying, I've got to have this kind of experience. I've got to see these kinds of things. I've got to do these kinds of things. Why? Because if I don't do them now, it's over. And, and the resurrection saying, it's not over. And what I would want you to say, know is that you won't miss out. You will not miss out. You will not miss out. So many people hungering for a family or a job or a position or a promotion or seeing great sights or having great sex and thinking, this, I've got to get it now. And what I'm saying is you're not going to miss out if you know Jesus Christ. There is nothing you're going to miss out on. The, the greatest experiences physically, emotionally, mentally on this planet are echoes. Faint little echoes that tell you I was built for another world. And how am I going to get to that world? Through the one who already passed through. If you really believe 
as a Christian, this is a real resurrection. You can take so much greater risks. You can serve with abandon because you're never going to miss out. I want you to feel that. You can be incredibly generous with your time, with your money, your emotions. Why? You don't have to hoard it away because you've got to go see Alaska. You're not going to miss out. There, I'm sorry if you... I'm not saying anything bad about Alaska. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, do you not? This is it. You, as a Christian, many of you live like this is it. And you've got to grab for all the experiences and all the stuff that you can right now. And Jesus is saying in the upper room when He ate a fish sandwich, you're not going to miss out. There is nothing you're going to miss out on. You could live your whole life in a small community east of I-95 and just give your whole life to that community. And give your whole life to your family. And never go anywhere else. And you would never have to have this thought in your mind. Maybe I missed out. Why? Because you're not going to miss out. It completely reorients the way you think about this life. See, when Jesus comes into the upper room, if it's true, it doesn't just matter, like, good, I get to go to heaven one day. It matters right now. It matters how you live right now. The resurrection, if it's true, it really calls for one of two responses. Repentance. I've been shaping my whole life against about trying to choose this truth, and really, this is the truth. So I turn around. Or once I turn around and I start going for Jesus, oh, I take great risks. Because I'm never going to miss out. Let's pray together.